I invite you to turn to the Gospel of John, and uh, we're going to look, uh, I'm sorry, not the Gospel of John, we've been in John, we're going to look at the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 1, 26 through, through 56. Uh, we're going to do a two-week series um, called When Your World is Turned Upside Down. And uh, in this short series, what we're going to do is we're going to look at um, two stories involving Mary and her elderly cousin Elizabeth. And both the stories involve um, God's grace in some very difficult times in their lives. In fact, their worlds have been completely turned upside down. So, uh, when you have had times in your life where your world's been turned upside down, <clears throat> it sort of literally and figuratively takes your breath away. And you've had times like that. Maybe it came when you received an unexpected phone call. Uh, maybe it came when a uniformed police officer knocked at your door unexpectedly. Maybe your world got turned upside down when a friend said, you better sit down when I tell you this. Um, Earth-shattering events do happen. I can imagine a mom and dad standing, sitting in a doctor's waiting room, and uh, they're waiting for the results of a test for their daughter. And when the doctor comes into the room there, the parents are glued to that doctor's face, eagerly hoping for some sort of smile, some sort of good news. And when the doctor comes in and his face is grimaced and he says, I've got some bad news, those parents' worlds get turned upside down. Your world can get turned upside down in another way. Sometimes there's good news. Sometimes there's good news. Imagine a husband or a wife coming back home one day and the husband or the wife says to his or her spouse, wow, what a day, what a day. I've got some great news, but it's really complicated. I've got the job that I have always wanted, but it involves a move a long way away. And you know that you've got four kids, and you know that their worlds are going to be turned upside down. I can remember a phone call that I had with my, my dad. And my dad called me. My dad's 89 now. My dad called me many years ago, and he said, he said, Rod, uh, the biopsy came back, and I have cancer. Uh, I was shocked by that. I was shocked by that. Or the day that my mom called me and she said, uh, Rod, your, your sister's going to be okay. She'll be okay. My mom was always really good at softening bad news. She'll be okay. But she was hit by a car on the way to school today. And I wanted you to know about that. So um, there are a lot of things that could happen in your life that would turn your world upside down. We live in a, in a fallen world. But what do you do when your world does get turned upside down? Well, <coughs> we're going to look at Mary's story and what Mary did, and what's amazing is that Mary immersed herself in community, and it was the kind of community that allowed her not just to survive, but to thrive when it got turned upside down. I want to start by, by reading <coughs> two key verses. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. 
I'm just going to start with the story so you can kind of get the feel for what Mary was going through. Uh, First century Nazareth was an extremely small village, and a lot of people think it was probably less than 800 residents. And and most of the people in Nazareth, uh, they were related to each other. Uh, They knew each other. Uh, They knew each other very well. Everyone looked out for each other. Everyone was in everyone else's business. One of the downsides of living in a city like that. In that home, there was a young teenage girl whose name was, well, in Hebrew, it would have been Miriam. Would have been Miriam. And um, if you visited the city at that time and you observed Mary, she probably was not the best and brightest in the village. Probably wasn't. She clearly wasn't the bubbly, popular cheerleader type. She probably wasn't the person to have 4,500 people on her Facebook friend page and was a YouTube sensation. She was not that kind of person. Mary was the most common name in Israel at the time. It was everywhere. And, and her name suggests that she was an ordinary, common sort of an individual. One night, uh, an angel appears to this girl. I just chose a, an example from the village of Nazareth. They've got a reenactment of what Nazareth was like. <coughs> Imagine a common girl like the one that you see up on the screens. And an angel appears to that, to that girl and it's not just any angel, it's the angel Gabriel. Uh, there are two named angels in the Bible, Michael and Gabriel. Michael's specialty is acting out God's commands. Well, Gabriel's specialty is announcing God's, God's plans. This is one of the biggest announcements in all of human history. And Gabriel has the privilege of announcing something to this unknown, unheard of, very common girl. There were thousands of girls in Israel, tens of thousands, who would love to have been the mother of the Messiah. I mean, that would have been an enormous privilege. Um, And you'd think that the privilege would go to a sophisticated girl in in Jerusalem. You know, Jerusalem is the big city. Maybe Maybe that becomes the place. Or there was the city of Sepphoris, which was four miles near Nazareth. And it was a very sophisticated city. Maybe the angel would go to that city. He doesn't. He goes to a very humble girl in a very humble city in the very humblest of circumstances. And he gives her the privilege of a lifetime. The privilege of of all human history, really. It's amazing. And the, the, the announcement is amazing. Uh, Gabriel says to Mary, your son is going to be incredibly significant. He's going to be very great. Okay, well, a lot of very great people are around. There's, there's Herod the Great. There's Alexander the Great before him. No, he's going to be beyond that. He's going to sit on the throne of David. He's going to be the son of the Most High, meaning he will be God himself. His kingdom will have no end. This w- announcement was way too much for a 15-year-old girl to take in. Now, you think about it from Mary's standpoint. If you were knowledgeable and sophisticated, you would have said, time out, Gabriel, time out. I want a contract because what you're proposing is going to really mess with my life. I want a contract. I want you to talk to my parents about that. 
I want articles of, of indemnification on this. I want some guarantees here. I mean, cool announcement, awesome opportunity, but this could really complicate things for me. Mary seeks none of that. With astonishing faith, she says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. It is a beautiful expression of childlike faith. And within moments, she is supernaturally pregnant by the power of the Holy Spirit. But I have to tell you, Mary's, Mary's world just got radically turned upside down. Uh, for starters, the punishment for premarital sex in the Old Testament was death. Seems kind of crazy in the circumstances we live in in America in 2017. But the penalty, according to Deuteronomy 22:23, was death. So by accepting the statement of the angel, she is risking her life. Her world just got turned upside down. Moreover, the social penalty for, for pre extramarital sex was a, was a permanent stigma. And it, it possibly meant that she would never be married, particularly if she stayed in Nazareth. In fact, for the rest of her life, she had that reputation because the Pharisees say to Jesus, hey, hey pal, we weren't born of fornication. We know the reputation of your mom. We weren't born of fornication, but you were. That's the idea. It would involve a permanent stigma. And the practical consequences of showing up pregnant were terrible. Scandal, shame, disgrace, dishonor. <coughs> Not just for, for Mary, but for siblings and grandparents and cousins and aunts and uncles, which would have been the whole village of Nazareth. Her world got turned upside down in a major way. So what does she do? She embarks on a very dangerous journey to go visit her cousin, because the angel just said, hey, your cousin, who's very elderly, she is pregnant, and she is in her six months. Now, Mary knew this was a miraculous pregnancy. Mary's envisioning <coughs> Elizabeth. I don't know how long it's been since she's seen Elizabeth, but Mary's thinking, she's very old. <laughs> like, she is really old, and she's pregnant. She has a miraculous pregnancy, I have a miraculous pregnancy. I have got to go and see Elizabeth. So she packs up some basic necessities, and I'm talking really basic necessities. She's not packing her, you know, her bug out bag. She's not strapping on her North Face backpack, you know, and her Solomon hiking shoes and her Comperdell hiking poles. She's not doing any of that. She's basic basic necessities, <coughs> and she's off. Now, scholars are, are divided about how she goes. Um, <coughs> some think that she joined a caravan. Others think she went at it alone. I don't think she joined a caravan because to join a caravan, the caravan leader would have required serious money, and he would never would have done this without getting the permission of the father. I suspect what Mary did was she went alone mostly traveling by night, and she's taking the central path, which was the more, is the more direct path, but it was the more dangerous path from Nazareth in the north to the village of Ein Karim in the south, <coughs> which was where John the Baptist's parents were outside near, near Jerusalem. This is a girl with tremendous grit 
This is a five-day trip. It's 65 miles as the, float, as the crow flies, 70 miles with all the twists and turns, very dangerous during that time period, known uh, route of terrorists and brigands and robbers and thieves, and she's taking the risk to go it alone. I'm sensing it took five days, and by the time she reaches the hill country of Judea, she is exhausted. So imagine that one morning she's walking and she sees the hill country of Judea. This is a rugged place. And see, she's trudging up the hill to where the village is, and she reaches the village, having hiked at night, reaches the village, and the villagers are up, they're getting their water, they're kind of up and about in the village, and she says, hey, um, my name's Elizabeth, and uh, do you know where, um, uh, my name's Mary, do you know where Elizabeth and Zechariah are? They say, oh yeah, three doors down, one door to the right, there it is. So she goes to the house, knocks on the door. Elizabeth cautiously opens. Remember, she's been in seclusion. She's not wanting to see anybody. She op- cautiously opens the door. Elizabeth says, Mary? Is, 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 that, is that you? What are you doing here? Come on, come on in. Just then, the miracle happens. And it is a very cool miracle. All miracles are cool. But this one is especially cool. John the Baptist leaps in Elizabeth's womb. The Greek word is the word skiptao. Doesn't take a rocket scientist or a linguist to know that that's the word from which we get our word to skip. He's not just mildly kicking in her womb, he's doing backflips in her womb. He's skipping around. This is a big deal. She's feeling like, whoa, what's going on inside me? This is, wow, this is incredible. And um, she's filled with the Holy Spirit. She's overjoyed by what she doesn't even know to be taking place. Now, let's just pause for a moment and consider this. Can John the Baptist see Jesus? Obviously not. He is in Elizabeth's womb. (coughs) Can Jesus physically reach out his hands and touch John the Baptist? Obviously not. He is in in Mary's womb. But in the womb, John the Baptist and Jesus are doing their ministries. Jesus sending the Holy Spirit into Mary's body, which is conjoined, obviously, to John the Baptist's body. That's Jesus' ministry <coughs> after he's, he's raised. He gives the Holy Spirit. Jesus is doing his ministry prior to his physical birth. And John the Baptist is also doing his ministry prior to his birth. His ministry is to announce the Messiah. And when Jesus shows up in utero... John the Baptist announces the Messiah to Mary, who then announces it back to uh, to Elizabeth, who then announces it back to Mary. Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit, (coughs) and she says this, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. (coughs) And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? 
For behold, with the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Tremendous miracle. Tremendous miracle. Um, after five days of dangerous travel, Mary hears that. And she thinks, I'm home. I'm exactly where I need to be with Zechariah and Elizabeth, fellowshipping in the presence of what God is doing in our respective bodies. I can imagine Mary and Elizabeth talking for the rest of the day. Zechariah was part of the conversation, but remember, he can't speak, and most likely he can't hear because they had to do sign language for Zechariah so that he could figure out what was going on. He can't speak can't hear. And that meant the total focus of Zechariah and Elizabeth's relationship was on them as the bearers of the men who would change the world. Zechariah is present, but he's sort of out of it. The focus is on Mary and Elizabeth. The focus is on Jesus and his presence and John the Baptist and his future ministry. Now, do you see the amazing thing about God? He goes to a hidden girl in Nazareth. That hidden girl goes to a hidden couple in the hill country of Judea. God loves to go to the hidden people. He loves going to the hidden people. Hidden people are beloved by, by God. You know, you know why I know that? The reason why <coughs> I know that is because of the statement I read about a little while ago, in the sixth month. If you look at ancient documents, what you see in ancient documents is that ancient events were always marked by the year of the reign of the king. In the fifth year of king so-and-so, in the 18th year of king so-and-so, in the 20th year of king so-and-so, such and such took place. Ancient documents are filled with time references, and it always goes back to the reign of the king. In this case, who does it go back to? goes back to the pregnancy of a hidden woman in Ein Karen, outside of Jerusalem. This is so like God. God loves to take hidden people in hidden places, and he loves to endow them with significance. And for the next three months, Mary lives with Zechariah and Elizabeth, and they're going to do all sorts of normal things. There's going to be cooking and cleaning. There's going to be the preparation of the place where the baby would, would lie. Uh, I don't know what they did for diapers. I don't know. Uh, I know they didn't have pampers. I don't know they didn't have wet wipes. Uh, but I'm told that people would gather certain things so that there were diapers for when the baby was born. They were doing all those things. And all the while, Zechariah is handicapped, and he does what he can, but the focus is on the women and what is happening with them. Now, let's jump back for a second, and I want to draw your attention to the main idea of this story. And here's the main idea. Here's the lesson that the Holy Spirit had in mind when he inspired this, this story. When your world is turned upside down, God is going to draw you into supernatural communities. And those supernatural communities are going to empower you to become the person that God designed you to be. Or to put it in a slightly different way. When your world is completely rocked to the core, God's grace is going to kick in. 
and God will draw you into some supernatural community that equips you at another level so that you can handle what you're, what you're currently going through. Let me give you a little bit of theological background <clears throat> on why this would be true. This is the first example in the New Testament of what we would call the body of Christ. We have the literal body of Christ in Mary. But now what's happening is we've got people coming together. So we we could call this the proto-body of Christ. It's the body of Christ beginning to be seen as a microcosm of what will come later. So what's the body of Christ? The body of Christ consists of all followers of Jesus, no matter where they're located around the world, and no matter when they've lived in human history. It's all those people in human history, having lived and currently living, who are genuine followers of Jesus. That's the body of Christ. Today, the body of Christ is huge. It's huge. I read different estimations of how many believers there are around the globe, and it, it, it ranges from 3 billion to 3 point something billion. It's, it's very big. It's very big. Uh, I don't know how many of those are, are genuine believers of Christ, but at least the statistics are that the body of Christ is growing exponentially in what's called the global south, which is South America, Africa, India, places like Indonesia, places like that. And it's growing in ways that are off the radar screen. It's not like, you know, the uh, Indonesian Times is saying growth of the Christian faith is massive and major. Not like, it's not like that at all, because it, it grows in underground places. It grows in hidden places. It grows in ways that are not obviously seen by the powers of the world. But what's the body of Christ at this moment in Israel with Mary, Elizabeth, Zechariah, John, and Jesus? It is tiny. It is incredibly tiny. I would also say that the body of Christ is not time-bound. The body of Christ consists of people of the past. I've never met C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis died when I was six years old. I never met C.S. Lewis, but I have been powerfully impacted by his writings. I love what he writes. I have read many biographies of C.S. Lewis. I love being ministered to by this man who I never knew. C.S. Lewis never knew George MacDonald, but in many places, C.S. Lewis says, George MacDonald was my mentor. George MacDonald helped me come to Christ as I read his book called Fantasies. So the body of Christ consists of people from every different time frame. And here's the body of Christ consisting of five people, Zechariah, Elizabeth, Mary, John, and Jesus. And the literal body of Jesus is the side, uh, size of a poppy seed or a mustard seed. It's a little tadpole size at this point in Mary's womb. Now let's think about the composition of, of this proto-body of Christ. We've got Mary, Elizabeth, and Zachariah, and we see diversity in that group, don't we? We see young and old, very young, 13, 14, 15, and very old, 75, 85, however old, old, old she is. We have male and female. We have healthy and handicapped. 
In the body of Christ, there is a wonderful diversity that we celebrate. Spiritual growth does not come from sameness. Spiritual growth comes from celebrating and being challenged by diversity in the body of Christ. One time we were in St. Aldate's church in England, in Oxford, and St. Aldate's had this very interesting sign. And the sign was um, really directed toward people and their political preferences. What the sign says is that if you are conservative, we celebrate this about your presence in our fellowship. If you're liberal, we celebrate this about your presence in our fellowship. If you're independent, we celebrate this about your presence in our fellowship. And they had a vibrancy about them because clearly the centrality of their faith was Jesus and not the explosive political issues that are present in England and in every country around the world. Diversity is a thing that can stimulate us, racial diversity, intellectual diversity, socioeconomic diversity, the whole thing. We see the diversity at the very beginning. We also see the body of Christ is composed of two children in the womb, and the presence of Jesus is inspiring spirit-led activity. The presence of Jesus is inspiring the Holy Spirit to inspire songs. We have three wonderful songs in Luke chapter 1, songs that are filled with Scripture, songs that are filled with poetic brilliance. The Holy Spirit is inspiring worship. So we have five humans in this proto-body of Christ that are being led and are being fed by the presence of the Holy Spirit. This was a Spirit-filled community from the very beginning. Now, I find it amazing that in this proto-body of Christ, we have very high levels of authenticity. That's so important about the body of Christ. Everybody had a problem. Everybody had this thorny, knotty, complicated problem. Zechariah has a problem. Zechariah is, is unable to speak and probably unable to hear <coughs> because he didn't believe God, didn't believe the angel when the angel was there in the temple. Angel said, you're going to have a child. Oh, seriously? I mean, prove it to me. And that sin caused him to be temporarily unable to speak and unable to hear. In the body of Christ, we often have people who are suffering the consequences of sins. They might not last forever, but they're suffering current consequences of some bad choices, of, of, of some, sin, some, some sinful things that they've done. So every day that they're together, there's a reminder, yeah, Zechariah didn't believe God. It'll change. You know, but he's suffering the consequences of, of sin. Did they honor him? Yes, they did honor him. There are clues in the text that they honored this one who was suffering the consequences of sin. We also see that Elizabeth has a problem. <coughs> now, I get it. She was childless, <coughs> and now she's pregnant. Huge blessing. But she is 70 years old, and it's not going to be easy to carry a child at age 70 plus. My daughter is pregnant with um, her fourth child at the age of 37, and she was incensed when her, midwife, when her midwife said something about a geriatric pregnancy. That didn't sit too well with her. 
The proper term is advanced maternal age. <laughs> that's, that's almost as bad. At least it was for my daughter. Advanced maternal age. Elizabeth's pregnancy was complicated for her at her age. So she's got a problem. And Mary has a big problem as, as well. What are her parents going to think when they find out? What is Joseph going to think? What are her friends and relatives going to think? An unexpected pregnancy in our culture does not carry the social stigma that it did in the first century. Worst case scenario, Mary faces rejection and possibly death. So everybody in this proto-body of Christ has a big problem. And that's so much like the body of Christ that we, that we deal with in 2017. You know, we can look at, at this group here and think, okay, we're pretty put together, pretty well clothed. Probably that person over there didn't have a problem, and they don't have a problem, and my problems are secret, so I'm not going to tell anybody about my problem because everybody else around here didn't have a problem. That is not true. Everybody in this room has an issue that is keeping them awake at night and bringing them to tears and anxiety. I wake up last night, 3 o'clock, 2.17 in the morning, and I had had this really disturbing dream. And I'm thinking about this dream, and I'm thinking, okay, I, I want to at least remember this to tell it to Cindy in the morning. And I was awake for an hour, okay? Everybody in the body of Christ faces difficult issues, just like they did back in the first one. So the thing I want you to see is that the body of Christ is, is very ordinary and also very supernatural at the same time. There's ordinariness and there's spiritual power at the same time. Spiritual power is what they're encountering when they're together in the presence of Jesus. Ordinariness is what they're encountering as they plan meals, prepare for the coming of a child, and then as Mary helps Elizabeth deliver John the Baptist. The body of Christ contains both. But man, the main idea is this. <coughs> when your world is radically turned upside down, God loves to draw people into supernatural communities, empowering them to be all that God has designed them to be. So what about us? Here, here's the main point. No matter where you are in your journey, you need the body of Christ, and you need to consciously think about your commitment to the body of Christ. So here's takeaway number one. Commit to it. First takeaway is, is commit to the body of Christ with intentionality. The now here's, here's a principle that I want to <coughs> have you think about. The darker the culture the more believers tend to commit to the body of Christ. The more Christianized the culture, the less Christians tend to commit to the body of Christ. I can kind of do without it. Live in a Christianized culture, I, I can kind of do without it. We saw this in Russia when we were working there in the early 2000s. There was a passionate vibrancy about the body of Christ that was really exciting. And I can remember being in homes at night with collections of believers, and it felt like Thanksgiving and Christmas all rolled up into one. 
It was dark out. One time it snowed. And, and yet there was this brightness and this beauty about the body of Christ gathered in this Russian home. We're talking about current events. We're talking about the Lord. We're talking about biblical passages. We're talking about God. We're talking about ministry. We're talking about the Lord. There was, there was a synergy about the body of Christ in Russia that was wonderful. Felt that same thing in Cuba. Now, you can't get two different cultures than Russia and Cuba geographically and weather-wise. Both are communist countries, right? But felt the same thing in Cuba where we, we, we would be gathered with, with believers and we felt this amazing aura of the presence of God. I know you felt that in different places, but it was the darkness of the culture that is driving the commitment of the believers. We've seen it with our daughter in Bedford, England. You keep reading reports about how dark England is, and, and it is in many ways, spiritually. And yet those, those churches in England that are, that are thriving are thriving because the body of Christ senses a synergy about their purpose in the midst of a dark culture. We see that with our three or four kids are in Seattle, and we see that in the churches in Seattle. Seattle's a, a tough place to live in a lot of ways. And yet those churches that are thriving are thriving because the body of Christ is existing in strong, committed, devoted community. Here's the thing I detect about the Midwest and the South. It's a little bit more acceptable to be a believer. And so sometimes what people, people do is they act as if they are sophisticated connoisseurs of community. So they evaluate, oh, I don't quite like this. I'm not going to commit. Or they evaluate something else and go, uh, we could tweak this a little bit and I'd be more committed. We become sophisticated connoisseurs of community. So commitment levels are low. And some, in, in some places it, it might seem high because there is activity, but the, the inner sense of commitment is low. We've got to be all the more diligent to commit to the body of Christ. It's a little bit like going to the doctor and you get your checkup and the doctor says, okay, so let's, let's, let's talk. And the, and the doctor says, whoops, the doctor says, uh, you need to start exercising, you need to start eating right. And what do most people say to their doctors? Ah, oh, doc, can I, just give me the pill. Just give me the pill, come on. I don't want to exercise. I don't want to eat right. Give me the pill and we'll be good. And the doctor says, well, yeah, I, I can do that. I can do that. But a year from now, a year from now, you'll still have issues. But let's say you said, okay, I'm going to do it. And you start exercising, you start eating right. What's going to happen a year from now? You're going to have a transformative experience with your physical body. And the same is true in the body of Christ. It's easy to say, casual commitment's fine with me. I just don't need to be that committed. What's going to happen a year from now? Well, your, your level of transformation will be commensurate with the level of your commitment to the body of Christ. So the challenge is to allow yourself to be persuaded by Mary's example and say, I am all in. 
I am committed to the body of Christ. That leads to a second takeaway. And the second takeaway is bring your real self into <coughs> the body of Christ. Here's a principle about community. You get from the body of Christ what you invest in it. You get from it what you invest in it. When you're immersed in the body of Christ, you get out of it what you put into it. But here's the crux. You have to give, and you have to give your authentic self. If you bring your fake self into the body of Christ, uh, that's not going to work because, well, it'll work like at a surface level. But what's going to happen is you'll, you'll find the acceptance of your fake self. What you really crave is the acceptance of your authentic self. So bring your authentic self into the body of Christ. Remember, everybody in this little proto-body body of Christ had a problem. <laughs> Zechariah had a problem. Elizabeth had a problem. Mary had a problem. They're bringing their real selves into the body of Christ, and they're being transformed by the fellowship within their real self. Here's my challenge. Bring, bring your real self into the body of Christ. Here's the third takeaway. Don't withdraw when people rub you the wrong way. They will rub you the wrong way. They will do it. You will think, oh, I can't believe she said that. That is so frustrating to me. I don't like her politics. I don't like his bombastic way of being a know-it-all. Don't like that. That's the body of Christ. How are you going to learn how to be a mature believer if you don't allow yourself to be rubbed the wrong way and have to present your real self into a challenging situation? That's how you grow. And then the final one is this. Be open to God showing up, showing up supernaturally. Matthew 18, 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Wait, who's there? The invisible Jesus. The invisible Jesus is saying, wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am among them. What that says is that in the real body of Christ, his supernatural presence wants to show up and lead you in ways that may stretch you out of your comfort zone. If you're not being stretched by the presence of the supernatural Jesus, it may be a sign that your time in the body of Christ is not, is not as receptive to the supernatural Jesus as it should. So here's my, here's my final takeaway. Out in the auditorium, there is a small group board, <clears throat> and it looks like this. And Mike's done a lot of great work on the small group board. Check out that board. <clears throat> if you're already in a small group, great. Pray over that small group board. If you're not in a small group, I just encourage you to check out one of those groups and see, see what, they're, <coughs> what they're up to, see what, see what they're doing. Point is this, God is honored and glorified when you take your upside down world and bring it into the body of Christ and he'll use that to transform you. Let's pray and then Mike's gonna come up and just give some final announcements. Father, I thank you for community. I thank you for the body of Christ. Lord, may we immerse ourselves in it in a highly productive way. In Jesus' name, amen.